0: You know that there are historical facts and you're trying hard to do this impossible thing, which is to reconcile all the narratives. And at some point you realized, let me just throw this problem back on the reader and let the reader get a sense of how complex this is and how it is possible to tell a story with an arc. I mean, the story of people being rounded up, sent to a school, being sifted and going through certain traumatic events. Everyone is going to recount that story, but they have very different ways of remembering it.
1: You're listening to Myself with Others, a podcast about the life of ideas on and off the page. I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest on this episode is the comic book artist and journalist Joe Sacco. Sacco has reported from Iraq and Palestine, from India and the Caucasus, from Bosnia, from the Northwestern territories of Canada, from the United States, and from Malta, where he was born in 1960. He's the author of numerous books, including Palestine, Safe Area Garajda, Footnotes in Gaza, and Paying the Land. I've known Joe for nearly two decades and deeply admire his work, both for its extraordinary artistry and for its evocation of the lives of the voiceless and the oppressed, history's losers, in the words of Edward Said, who wrote the preface to Joe's 2001 book, Palestine. He's a moral witness in the tradition of Orwell, a writer and an artist who aligns himself with the oppressed without becoming their stenographer. Throughout his work, he's shown a rare commitment to the truth telling and complexity that this entails we encourage our listeners to also check out bomb magazine's podcast fuse on each episode of fuse bomb magazine has invited an artist to choose a guest from any creative discipline an art crush a close collaborator or even a stranger that the person has admired from afar the guests on the show include the writer, artist, and singer-songwriter, David Byrne, the sculptor and visual artist, Simone Lee, choreographer, Miguel Gutierrez, the author and critic, Maggie Nelson, the documentarian, John Wilson, and others. Listen to Fuse today at bombmagazine.org. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thanks, Adam, and thanks for that uh, very kind introduction.
1: When did you first start drawing?
0: probably around the age of six. My mother was in hospital and my sister and I drew her a sort of full page comic book. And we stole a character from some British magazine, a character called Moonbeam.
1: And after that, we
0: just kept drawing. She used that character and I used that character. And then we fought over who, basically who stole it first. And and we were both cartooning. She was uh, sort of my rival my childhood but I've been drawing yeah quite early on and, and continually
1: so were you reading comic books when you were a kid
0: yeah I was reading I was reading comic books I was reading almost any comic book I could get my hand on which didn't tend to be superhero comic books they were more like uh British Westerns and uh, British war comics and then stuff like sergeant rock eventually mad magazine that's the kind of things I would read. I mean, I, I, I just love the form.
1: You've never really embraced the term graphic novel, and not least, I imagine, because your books aren't fiction. But a lot of so-called graphic novels are memoirs based in fact, like Mouse or Persepolis or Fun Home. So what is your objection to the term graphic novel, at least as it applies to your own work?
0: Well, I mean, you put your finger on it. I never think of my work as fiction, so novel, graphic novel implies fiction. But I've always sort of thought of it as a marketing term, a way of letting the public know that it's okay to buy these comic books because now they're graphic novels and we've got them un- under sort of the, they're between hard covers now. So I just never, I was never sold on on the terminology. But you know, it's a losing battle now. Everyone uses the word graphic novels and if I want to explain what I do, I will use, I will say, I draw graphic novels because if you say comic books
1: right so eventually you've basically surrendered to this marketing tool I mean I think what you're also underscoring is that comic book artists have always labored under a dominant cultural assumption that they're practicing this inferior pulpy art form that it's really not something to be taken seriously
0: I never thought of it as a a diminutive art form ever I realized you know as the years progressed that people thought, oh, comic books, that's odd or that's weird. Or do you mean like Garfield? But to me, when they kicked in for me as a very serious matter, it was around the time I, I looked at old underground comics around college years. And I just really liked that subversive element of them.
1: Because these underground comic book artists, people like R. Crum, were part of a countercultural avant-garde. Um, they were really broaching a lot of transgressive themes.
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and some of those comics that I would stumble across were really powerful in what they were trying to do. I mean, they were taking a pretty hard look at American history or American culture. So to me, I liked that underground aspect of comics. I liked the fact that it was below the radar. In fact, I think I think that really served my work. When I started getting serious with my own work, the idea that no one cared about what I was doing was actually a a plus in a certain way. I mean, that's changed over the years, of course, as comics became graphic novels and entered bookstores, all that's changed. And I've sort of conformed to that change. But there's some part of me that always really appreciated the early kind of very underground nature of, of the comics appeal.
1: You know, in the 1950s, a German Jewish psychiatrist named Frederick Wertham wrote an influential book uh, condemning cartoons for instilling racist and violent ideas in young children. And there's a history of, of intellectual critique of comic books as the repository of the dark and violent and repressive fantasies of the mainstream. Ariel Dorfman, a Chilean writer, uh, wrote a polemical book about American comics and their relationship to the American empire. So I guess in a sense, the comic book is a good place to confront these ideas since it's where some of them were first nourished.
0: Yeah. And I think I think that's really true. I mean, um, I do think cartoonists, people who illustrate are often at the very forefront of creating stereotypes and propelling them. You know, when you think of how the Nazis portrayed the Jews, for example, you immediately go to this sort of cartoon version of a- Julius
1: Stryker, the image of the Jew.
0: Yes, absolutely. So as much as I like to think, you know, all hail the cartoonists and freedom of the press, we've always been part and parcel of certain projects that are that are to say the least uh, can can be quite destructive.
1: Well, in a way, the, the ambiguities, the political ambiguities of cartooning are crystallized uh, by the example of the French comic magazine, Charlie Hebdo. Charlie Hebdo famously started out as a radical libertarian uh, journal um, in the late 1960s. And then in the odds, its mockery of religion Its anti-clericalism increasingly turned in the direction of Islam with caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad that many Muslims considered offensive. Then in 2015, a massacre took place at the offices of Charlie Hebdo and some of its most famous cartoonists uh, were murdered in cold blood. The French state's response was to turn the dead into martyrs to French ideals, especially the ideal of uh, liberty and intellectual freedom. But quite a few Muslims in France didn't feel comfortable getting behind the slogan Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie because they didn't feel the cartoons represented them. And on the contrary, they felt the cartoons were derogatory and hurtful to a vulnerable minority.
0: The Hebdo case, it's quite complex. I mean, ultimately, there was the shock of the murders themselves and the taking of those lives. And I don't think a lot of those cartoonists, I mean, you, you can't sort of Lump them all in together. They they had different they had different values and all that. But you know, I guess you cannot really look at the Hebdo case without thinking about France and its own relationship to secularism and what it thinks the citizen should be. You know, with the French talk in terms of equality or liberty, I mean, they they seem to be different from how a lot of Americans think of them. I mean, to to an American, you have the liberty to wear the hijab in the street. I think that's Some people might not like it, but generally no one's going to really raise an eyebrow about it in France. It's sort of an issue
1: because of its history of the battle against the church, for example, and and now the mosque fills the place of what the Catholic church had once been in this imaginary, although the mosque doesn't have the power uh, that the Catholic church once had.
0: That's right. And I think, I think what the French would say is that, well, it's one religion or the other religion. It's religion. We attack religion as a concept. And I can follow the logic of it. And it all makes sense to me. I, I am troubled always by the fact that a society that works well needs to, I think, welcome its people who are on the outside. And as much as possible, it's, you, you make them insiders, but allow for their outsider-ness or their otherness or whatever you want to call it. Those things are very hard, I think, for a society to get exactly right. And I think societies never will get those things right. They're always going to wrestle with them. There's always going to be a tension. And sometimes the tension goes one way or the other, or, you know, on the scale of things, it it goes in certain directions. And I think France has a lot of um, a lot of problems with its immigrants. And as much as I actually believe very firmly in freedom of the press, and I think I would not fault the hebdo cartoonists for violating anything about freedom of the press. I mean, they are doing what they want to do, but I don't have to like it, or I don't have to think it's going to serve society. And they would say, well, to hell with serving society. We're here to make people laugh.
1: Do you think that we would see cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad or cartoons mocking of Islam differently if the artists creating them were themselves muslims who were trying to put forward a critique of their own religion
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it's um so many things come up when i think about hebdo i mean i'm I'm so shocked by what happened and so sorry about what happened but i do worry about the role cartoonists think they have i mean what responsibility do we have to the body politic I mean, do you look at society and see what the problems are and do you try to exacerbate them or do you laugh at them? And I'm not actually not against laughing at them. I think people need to have a sense of humor.
1: Well, there is a lot of humor in your work, but that humor is never the humor of ridicule, of derision, of contempt. You're not there to mock people. And, and that that compassion and that search to understand is one of the winning traits of your work. You know, I'm thinking of the way that you signal your presence as an observer, your surprise, your curiosity, your irritation, and, and sometimes your horror. Your glasses in your drawings are always blank, which leads me to wonder, how did you hit on that image? We, we never see your eyes in the work.
0: Now I look at that and I think of it as a pretense. It's become an image for its own sake. I mean, it's it's part of my image now in my journalistic work. I think the original idea was I want to show some aspects of myself, but I don't want to show everything, and it was like a signal to the reader that they're not going to look they're not going to look at me completely. I'm not showing myself completely. And to me when you draw someone's eyes, that's the real place. That's where the relationship happens with another person is in the eye is with the eyes, I think. Is it also
1: that in a sense we're placed in the position of your eyes that your eyes become our eyes when we're reading you
0: that's what some comics theorists have said but i wouldn't i wouldn't and i like it i like the sound of that but i can't say that was the original impulse the original impulse was just to sort of have a little distance between the reader and myself there's there's a comic sort of scholar i guess uh named um scott mcleod and i think he said that even the way i draw myself is somewhat nondescript is a is a way of getting the reader to put my, put themselves in my place.
1: David Reef, in a review of your book on Bosnia, writes, who would have imagined that the best dramatic evocation of the Bosnian catastrophe would turn out to be a book-length comic strip written by an American of Maltese origin, who arrived in the Balkans only in late 1995, after the shooting had largely stopped and stayed just four weeks. Who would have imagined indeed, and yet I suspect that your Maltese roots may have something to do with how you became the Joe Sacco we know. You were born in Australia in 1960, the son of Maltese immigrants. Uh, Your father an engineer, your mother a teacher. Perhaps you could talk about these Maltese roots. How did they play out in your family and did you have a strong sense of Maltese identity growing up?
0: You know, Australia was interesting in those in those days because especially where we were living, it was full of European immigrants and there were a lot of Maltese in Australia, a lot of Maltese like, you know, like immigrants. They you come to the country and you go to the places where other people like you are living. So actually our next-door neighbor was also from Malta and the man of the house was actually from the same village my dad and I were born in. I mean a village of eight hundred people in Malta. So we had friends who were Maltese, but, but but there were other peoples there.
1: So it was like a little Malta almost when you arrived there.
0: I mean there were Maltese around but there were it was mainly it was just pretty much European. In school, it was hard to find anyone who was Australian more than a couple of generations back. You met, you met kids who were born in Australia, but almost always the parents were from Europe. And so the friends of the family, people who would come over would be other European immigrants, basically. And the talk around the table between my parents and these people would be about the war. That was the commonality. Whether the person was German, Dutch, French, whatever, war was sort of the topic like what happened to you sort of thing. And so that stuff was swirling around me all the time. And I got quite used to this notion that you you live in history. When you're hearing those stories all the time, it's not like all you're hearing is the stories of your dad coming home from work and what happened at work. It's like you hear about the 40s and and the 30s and and whatever it
1: is. So, I mean, you heard some of those stories from your mother, who was a child when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, bombing the highlands and gassing civilians.
0: That's right. Well, both my parents lived through the war. I mean, I I did end up telling my mother's story from the war, but my dad's story was just as harrowing. You know, you don't really, when you're an immigrant, you're not really thinking, oh, I'm a Maltese immigrant. It's just you're raised in a certain way. There was a certain discipline my dad, you know, you're you're really a product of uh, your parents in a lot of ways. As, as you know, I guess that's not a, that's really a platitude, but you know, my dad, he was a apprentice at her in with Her Majesty's Navy at the age of fourteen during the war. He worked at the dockyard, and so he was a real Anglophile. He had really benefited from the British presence. That isn't the experience of all colonial people or colonized people, if you know what I mean. Um,
1: But it was his. It was
0: his. And he learned sort of a strict British discipline. And I really picked that up from him in a way. He was very, he wanted me to be an engineer, basically. And so he would give me mathematical problems to solve while he took a nap. I mean, he would write out these story problems. And I mean, my weekends were really doing physics experiments with him doing mathematical problems, and then going off to play as or to draw. But, but being supervised by him, having him trying to shape me in his image was really a part of my upbringing. And I didn't become an engineer. Only later did I sort of rub up against that sort of thing. But as a child, I just sort of went along with it. And I'd have to say, you know, it probably really aided me a lot. I was taught sort of discipline. I was taught to sit there and get something done on paper and then report back to my dad. The other thing about my upbringing that I think had to do with my mother was, uh, she got a scholarship to go to the public school in Malta and only 24 girls and 24 boys were admitted every year. So during the war she went to school and no matter what the bombing was like, she was going to continue going to school. And she did that. And she had sort of a more literary bent. And so my parents bought a lot of books. I mean, books sort of lined the walls. Even if they didn't read them, I think they almost wanted us to be around them. And that had a big, a pretty big impact too, like just growing up with those sorts of things. Now, is that a Maltese upbringing? Not really.
1: But it is the upbringing of people who had experienced the Second World War.
0: People who experienced the Second World War, who'd struggled, who'd sort of made something of, of themselves themselves. They both had a lot going against them because they were from villages in Malta and in Malta, even people who live in the cities five miles away act differently to villagers. You know, and you can be held back if you're from a village or in in those days, especially. Do you
1: think it was hearing their stories of war that led you to develop an interest in storytelling?
0: I don't know if it was the stories of war themselves that that uh, made me think about storytelling. It's just. I was interested in what my parents were talking about, and those seemed like very big stories to me. I never imagined my life could be as big as theirs had been somehow. You know, they lived with the sweep of history, and so those things always interested me. History began to interest me. I began reading pretty deeply at a pretty young age. history books i mean you know it's as a boy first you start reading about war and then it just sort of gets into other stuff
1: well when you arrived in the states you were 12. you were first in la and then you got to portland i believe you had a history teacher named hal swafford uh can you tell me about him
0: it's so great you should bring him up he was he was one of those marvelous teachers you have along the way and i had some good teachers I mean, he had this idea that you should read the literature that went along with the history that went along with the science. He believed in a pretty holistic way of, of treating education. But the thing that really sticks in my mind about him was he always wanted you to challenge what he was saying. He always used to sort of drum the side of his head and look at people with these kind of hot eyes and just say, think, don't take what I'm saying as as a given. And i got to say, I mean, growing up in the 70s in America was probably the right time to go to school because there were a lot of teachers who were from that 60s generation who had objected to the war in Vietnam. And they were a little more they weren't they hadn't bought the whole American project themselves. And so they were willing to let you confront it also or, or, or let you at least at least hint at it and allow you to come to your own conclusions. And Swafford made a big difference.
1: What were you reading with Swafford? Do you remember any of the history books he assigned to you?
0: I mean, we, we basically read, it was like 10th grade. And we were basically reading standard, it's just the standard text and readings from different things. It wasn't anything, I don't think it was anything really unusual.
1: It was more the questioning approach that he promoted.
0: It was the questioning approach, definitely. And the fact that he sort of affirmed that your love of history was okay when most kids even i mean kids sort of hate history you know i, I i've never really got my head into that because I, I cannot even imagine how anyone could find history boring
1: right i mean that does reflect a certain american attitude about the past
0: yeah i think that's that's really true i mean history sort of the, the throwaway stuff you know it's the stuff you edit out if you want to talk about what's going on now
1: you went to the university of oregon and began to work as a journalist after your studies but found it exceedingly boring. Were you at that time feeling the pull of cartooning? Were you drawing then? Did you have a sense that you could do a different kind of journalism and reportage that involved illustration?
0: I got out of um, journalism school and I couldn't find a journalism job. And I really wanted to be like a hard news reporter. That's what I studied. I I studied to be a reporter. When I finally did get jobs in journalism, they were really the most lame-ass kind of stuff you could imagine. I mean, I was working for city magazines that were really advertiser oriented, where when the ad salesman would uh, sell an ad, he'd drop a business card and say, this guy bought an ad, you might want to write a story about his business. So all this kind of my head full of what I was going to do with my, you know, my journalistic impulses and instincts were all sort of shattered pretty early on. And I couldn't really find any sort of journalism work that was going to be in the least bit satisfying. So, I mean, you know, to make a long short story short, I, I basically tried to fall back on drawing and comics or illustration which never remotely in high school did I think was going to be a living for me. I mean, I never thought of drawing comics as a living. I didn't know he made a living at that kind of thing.
1: So it was mostly a pleasure. It was a pleasure that you had. It was
0: a serious pleasure. I wouldn't even call it a hobby. It was like really an important thing for me to be doing. I'm not sure I actually thought in terms of a career. I never thought in terms of a career. It was just like an important thing I would do in my spare time. I ended up in Berlin doing rock posters album covers, and all that kind of stuff, and trying to do some comics. And I was little by little getting comics published, and eventually fanographics Books gave me my own title. It was called Yahoo. And that was, you know, pretty underground-ish in its way. It didn't sell anything, but it was a place where I kind of found my voice in a way.
1: Because you went to Berlin when you were about 28 in 1988 or so. Yeah, that's right. year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. What led you there?
0: I, one of the comics I did in this experimental phase when I was doing this thing, Yahoo!, was I um, joined a rock band. My friend had a rock band and they were doing a tour of Europe and I joined to sell their t-shirts. But really what I was doing was recording what they were saying. I was sketching them and they knew I was going to do a comic about their experiences.
1: So through that trip, so you were like a Rolling Stone journalist following the band, but with the intention of doing work of graphic reportage rather than a written piece.
0: Yeah. And I didn't, you know, especially this this early phase, I wasn't sure what I was doing really, but um, rock
1: journalism then had a kind of aura to it as well. Still.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It did have an aura to it. I was just doing what I was doing and uh, I made, I did a comic about it, but, but in the, in the course of that trip, I met some people in Berlin who were music promoters and they liked my drawings. And they said, if you ever want to come back here, you know, we can, you know, you could live with us and we can, you can do rock posters. And I thought that was a pretty good exchange. And I mean, I wasn't really there making a lot of money, but eventually I was scraping by a living. I mean, living in Berlin was cheap. I was living on people's couches. If I was renting a room, it wasn't that expensive. So. I was doing what i wanted to do and yeah get, just getting by and at some point i thought you know i should go to the middle east my, my interest in the middle east preceded this whole period by a few years i i should go to the middle east and maybe do a sort of autobiographical travelogue about my experiences there right
1: because you got to berlin at the time of the first intifada and began to think about the whole question of palestine You'd been reading Noam Chomsky, you'd read Edward Said. How did Palestine as a subject end up grabbing you? What what had led you there in the first place? Because you went there, I think, around 1991 and spent quite a bit of time in the occupied territories between 91 and 92.
0: I was interested because I felt, you know, I'd studied journalism, and at some point it became really clear to me that this uh, American-style objective reporting had really done me a disservice, I felt personally affronted, like I'd been not just taught a whole bunch of bullshit, but that I was in a profession that was pushing bullshit. Now, the the moment that I began to sort of question my um, ideas about the Middle East, which were summed up as Palestinians are terrorists, Israel is a beleaguered nation, blah, blah, blah was around the time Lebanon was attacked uh, in the early 80s, first by the air. And I remember the Israelis were dropping these, these bombs that were supposed to be used for defensive purposes. I felt a little uneasy about that. They were, they were hitting apartment blocks and destroying them, and killing a lot of people. Then when Israel invaded Lebanon and uh, surrounded or got into Beirut, uh, the, the massacres at Sabra and Shatila, I mean, by Christian Phalangists who were Israeli allies, and these massacres were done while the Israelis had surrounded uh, these refugee camps. That also didn't stick well with me. I was beginning to think. I thought the Palestinians were the terrorists. At that point, I slowly began to examine what was going on, and it was it was really sort of self-educating. At some point, I read Chomsky, I read Said, I read I read other things. And it was just turning my stomach because I felt that th- the media itself had pulled the wool over my eyes. This whole objective style goal standard that I'd been that had been pumped into my head. I thought American-style journalism was kind of the standard to shoot for. I realized you you could present facts and be very disingenuous at the same time. And that was pretty upsetting to me. When I realized, you know, you you can talk about a hijacking, you can talk about a commander raid and killings of Israeli civilians on a bus or mortar rounds or Katusha rockets being fired into Israel, but then you begin to understand that there's something else going on. There are stories that aren't being told, that are being leveled out or taken out.
1: That explained the quote that you use in footnotes in Gaza about how the hatred was planted
0: how the hatred was planted, like what was actually going on. And again, it goes back to history. You, I began to sort of read history, and then you began to sort of, or I began to see that there was whole narratives that I'd never been told about. And that made it very easy for me to buy something else, hook, line, and sinker. And so I felt a compulsion to go to the Middle East and to go and see for myself at first what i what i thought i would do was maybe what what i'll do is I'll um illustrate human rights reports there was a palestinian group called al-haq and i thought i will just draw what this human rights report is saying but on second thought i thought you know that's just it's just victimhood it's pure victimhood and i realized i should go myself and actually talk to people and not just sort of elevate them as as martyrs or victims with a capital V,
1: which would be no better in a way than just depicting them as terrorists.
0: That's right. I mean, it's not one or the other, right? Right.
1: I mean, you wanted to see them as complex human beings and to see how they lived. You've mentioned in previous interviews that you were influenced by the writer Michael Hare, the author of Dispatches, his great work on the Vietnam War. When you went to Palestine, Were you thinking about Hare's work?
0: Michael Hare was a big influence on me, as was Hunter S. Thompson. And those people who really felt something deeply and really understood the complexities, but weren't about making something very dry either. I mean, you know, if if you read Hunter S. Thompson, you realize the guy actually knows about electoral politics. He knows it very deeply, but he also really cares about it. There's a real passion for it. They were influences, but it's not as if I was looking at them and saying, "I want to do something like Michael or her or Hunter S. Thompson." It it, it was more like they gave me a taste in my mouth of what what it felt like to be in a place. And you
1: wanted to recreate that when you went to Palestine.
0: I honestly didn't know what I was doing when I went there.
1: What were your first experiences like, Joe, when you got to Palestine?
0: At first, I was really afraid. I mean, I was in a I didn't have much money, so I was in a youth hostel. The whole couple of months, I was there, I sort of propelled myself, I sort of forced myself, I I said, I'm here now, I better do something. So at first, I just got to know Jerusalem going around and something's always going on. So it wasn't like it was the action
1: finds you, you don't have to find the action,
0: the action sort of finds you. And yeah, exactly. But at some point, I just would get into a taxi, those sort of shared taxis that were going to places and just go to some random city that I didn't know anything about. And often I'd get into a conversation with someone in the taxi, like, what are you doing going to (laughs) Nablus? Or else I would just arrive, get out of the taxi and someone, I mean, invariably, someone would just come up to me and say, what are you doing here? And i would say, I just came to see how you, you live, how life is like, you know, under occupation. And in those days, it was actually really possible. I think nowadays people would be quite suspicious and for good reason. So you
1: never attracted the suspicion that you could be a spy or that you might actually be Israeli. I mean, because when you read your body of work on Palestine, from your earliest work uh, to footnotes on Gaza, you always have the sense that you've really gained the trust of the people that you spoke to. Um, Was that difficult to pull off?
0: I think if I'd done that in the 2000s, I wouldn't have done that in the 2000s. I think by that, that point, people had become very suspicious of those representing themselves as journalists, because sometimes they were spies, and sometimes they were there to gather information. The time I went was a, a bit more of a naive time, and I think you have to be a bit naive to do what I did. It really worked well for me, because I, had, I ended up getting these sort of random sketches of what life was like in the territories. I was basically saying, show me what you want to show me. Oh, you want to see people who've been in hospital now? Okay, let's go to a hospital. Oh, you want to see people who had their house demolished? Okay, let's, let's, I can take you there. And these
1: were ordinary people. I mean, this wasn't like the typical piece of reporting that you see in a Western newspaper where you have interviews with the, the same people, the same representatives, the same officials. In a sense, you were bringing that subterranean underground ethos of cartooning to the way that you reported on Palestine
0: yeah but without being too self-conscious about it i mean honestly I, I cannot stress this enough i didn't really know what i was trying to do i did i thought of it as a travelogue because i'd done autobiographical comics that's the reason i drew myself in it not for any sort of journalistic motive well, a lot of things are accidental and form the way they form just organically never had a theory about journalism and comics when i got there I began interviewing people in a very journalistic way. And little by little, I began to see my approach as journalistic. Because then you begin to think of, okay, well, I've seen people who've had their olive trees cut. I've talked to people who've had their houses demolished. What other pieces of this jigsaw puzzle do I need to acquire to make this picture complete? You begin to think like that. And that's more like a journalist would think. But that sort of developed basically because I'd studied journalism. But the good thing about doing those sort of of random interviews where you randomly are chosen by a random person is it's not a fixer. And I have nothing against fixers, but they will take you to people. You wrote a
1: whole book on a Bosnian fixer.
0: That's right. But they will take you to people who are eloquent, who have their patois down, all that. And there's something to be said for just throwing yourself into the mix and letting people sort you out and that's what that's what palestine was about and i'm in a way
1: it was your journalistic baptism
0: it was and i look at that book with a lot of affection i could never duplicate it i could never duplicate that naivete because i'm not that person anymore
1: went back to Palestine on a number of occasions. You reported from the refugee camps in Gaza with Chris Hedges. You were in Hebron during the Second Intifada. And you spent a great deal of time doing what is essentially a work of historical detection on two massacres that took place in the Gaza Strip in 1956 during the Suez War. If I'm not mistaken, that book, Footnotes in Gaza, was inspired by something that you had read in Noam Chomsky's book, the fateful triangle.
0: That's right. He quoted a UN report and that's all he did. I mean, that's what he does. He takes what's in the record and he quotes from it. And it was about something that happened in Han Yunus and something that happened in Rafa, uh, killings of unarmed Palestinian men that were, especially the one in Han Yunus, it was 250 some people,
1: 287, I think,
0: 287, which would, which would be the, the biggest Massacre of Palestinians on Palestinian soil. But I hadn't really read about it anywhere else. Then Chris Hedges and I went to the Gaza Strip to do a story for Harper's Magazine. And I had that in mind. We went to Han Yunus and we started asking around. And older people told us about this massacre. And Chris wrote it up in the story. I was doing illustrations, but he wrote it up in the story. And that's what was edited out for length. I'm not saying there was an ulterior motive. And that's
1: also what led you back, though.
0: It led me back. It's it's like uh, as someone who, you know, was brought up reading history, had hell as a teacher, another affront that the history would be taken out. And to me, history, what's going on now and what happened in the past are, are absolutely intermingled. You cannot talk about the present without talking about the past. And I felt like I had to go back.
1: At one point, you quote a Palestinian in the Gaza Strip saying that here in Gaza events are continuous. And you go on to say that Palestinians never seem to have the luxury of digesting one tragedy before the next is upon them. I'm guessing that created some difficulties for you when you wrote your book, Footnotes in Gaza, because here you were in the Gaza Strip, in the middle of the second intifada, a time of intense repression and violence, and you're trying to report on a massacre that took place in 1956, when the people that you're talking to are much more concerned about present day massacres and house demolitions and violence.
0: Right, but I never saw any sort of contradictions or, to me, it was all so much part of the same thing. I actually appreciated the tension between what was historical and what was present. And there were even older people who had suffered a great deal in the 1950s and 60s and other times who would talk to me about those events, but then they wondered, why are you talking about what happened then? They would say, go out two or 300 meters and look at them demolishing our homes. That tension is interesting to me or that dialectic between the past and the present.
1: You call it a remorseless continuum, a historical blur.
0: Yeah, I think it is. And that's why, I mean, uh, I do think there are certain peoples in the world, and I think Palestinians are a prime example, of a people who will never, they can't look back nostalgically on a period. They're not like Brits who can look back on 1940, the finest hour, and have see a movie about the romance, you know, some romance of the Battle of Britain. If the Battle of Britain was still going on today, there'd be nothing romantic about it. But the past does inform the present, and it is to show this continuum The Palestinians, for example, have never been out from that shadow, out from under that shadow.
1: Right. You mean the shadow cast by 1948, above all.
0: People hand down their trauma, and you're handing down your trauma to people who are being traumatized in the present. That's very heavy.
1: What really impresses me about Footnotes in Gaza and your other work is not just the compassionate witness and solidarity, but the intellectual moral rigor. I mean, you're you're not just listening to the testimony and recording it. You're, you're sifting through it. You're comparing it. You're contrasting testimonies with other testimonies. You're admitting when you can't form a coherent picture of what actually happened. And you put all of that, the research and the questions about the research, in your book. There's one episode in Footnotes in Gaza where someone is recounting an event He thinks it took place in 1956, but it's actually something that took place in 1967. You know, what you're doing is not just commenting on the blur. You're actually reflecting the blur. You're doing the work of a historian.
0: You know, it's funny because you're there and the first impulse is to try to sort of hammer things into shape. You know that there are historical facts and you're trying hard to do this impossible thing, which is to reconcile all the narratives. And at some point you realize, let me just throw this problem back on the reader and let the reader get a sense of how complex this is and how it is possible to tell a story with an arc. I mean, the story of people being rounded up, sent to a school, being sifted, and going through certain traumatic events, everyone is going to recount that story, but they have very different ways of remembering it. And I think, you know, basically, there comes a point when you say, that's okay. The, the arc of the story is still there. Let these narratives butt up against each other. They're still going in the same direction. And
1: competing narratives. And so, in a sense, a work like this is taking part in that struggle over memory. Yeah, it's... Uh, right, you're not trying to say that one narrative is the true narrative.
0: And I have no problem with the competing narratives. I'm not trying to... You're not
1: trying to say that one narrative is the sole narrative. No.
0: I think, as you... The word used blur there's a blurred narrative i'm interested in just presenting what i heard if something was obviously outside of the spectrum of what other people are saying i'm a little more suspicious
1: there's a real ethics i think to the kind of work that you do and to me it's summed up in this passage that i'd like to read you write i chiefly concerned myself with those who seldom get a hearing." and I don't feel it's incumbent on me to balance their voices with the well-crafted apologetics of the powerful. The powerful are generally excellently served by the mainstream media or propaganda organs. The powerful should be quoted, yes, but to measure their pronouncements against the truth, not to obscure it. Now, while you do very much center the voices of the voiceless and the oppressed, and chronicle experiences that have been ignored or suppressed, you're not blind to the flaws of your subjects. And you do write about the ways in which the cruelty they have experienced has also damaged them, impaired their moral faculties, led them to long for revenge, even to rejoice in cruelty. I'm thinking of a scene in footnotes in Gaza when a group of American soldiers had been captured and killed in Iraq. This is around the time of the beginning of the American invasion of Iraq. And your Palestinian acquaintances take some real delight in this. And you say... I balk at the footage of the bodies. It disturbs me. And we see you to the side of your Palestinian interlocutors. It's clear that at that point, you don't really feel at one with them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. I've learned not to expect. You can't expect the traumatized to be angels.
1: But some people would admit your point that you can't expect the oppressed to be paragons of virtue, but they wouldn't include those scenes. They'd simply ignore them. So there wouldn't be the scene of you, the witness, listening and feeling that sense of discomfort and unease. And I think that's what makes it so striking.
0: Well, I'm not an activist. In other words, I'm not trying to put the best possible face on something for a certain end. I'm trying to be a journalist. And as opposed to sort of objectivity, I'm trying to be honest, really honest. You do see foibles. You do see Anger, hostility, pleasure in even harm to other people. And the point is to realize those are horrible human traits, but put it in context. Or or is there a context here? I mean, I'm interested in human psychology and how it works. I'm interested in in presenting honestly what what I'm seeing, really. Which
1: I think is why you're in those books, too. Maybe you didn't know why you were in them at first, but that ends up being the role that your character plays in those books.
0: That's absolutely right. I mean, I never really thought of the implications of having myself, drawing myself into my stories, to be honest. But over time, I began to see why you, you probably, I, I should draw myself into the stories because on some level, you sort of act as a bit of a Greek chorus. And on some level, because you are an outsider, the way people are, reacting to you or interacting with you says something about their experiences. It puts something into relief. And those things are, are very useful in trying to convey a situation or a story. And to me, it's a wonder in a way that journalists write themselves out of stories.
1: Not the new journalists, of course.
0: But the new journalists, are, the new journalists gave me, let's say this. It
1: gave you permission to do the kind of work that you do in some ways, didn't it?
0: Permission. But also, here's the other thing about the new journalists. They are incredibly readable. They're entertaining. And I don't, and I I use that word with very deliberately. What I do is not an entertainment, but I want people to turn the page. And, you know, when I read the New York Times, I feel like I'm slogging. It might be stuff I need to know. Of course I'm going to get through this. It's very important information. This is a good reporter. It's good reporting. But man, I'd rather read a new journalist just pulling me into the story, making me feel like the journalist is alive, the scene is alive, and I'm alive with him or her, you know?
1: In his review of Safe Area Gorazde, your book on the war in Bosnia, uh, David Reif writes, for anyone who spent time in Bosnia during the war, it is to experience an almost unsettling jolt of recognition. Sakos Bosnia is the one that those of us who covered the fighting actually experienced day by day, rather than the one we mostly reported on. High politics, the shuttling of international negotiators, The UN's empty promises, the movement of front lines are so much background noise in Sacco's book, just as they were for ordinary Bosnians over the course of four years of fighting. His aim is to evoke a very different and far more visceral reality. Joe, you arrived in Bosnia, I think in 1995. What did it feel like to you at the time? You had spent considerable amount of time in Palestine in the midst of an ongoing military conflict. When you arrive in Bosnia, The guns have fallen silent. And yet, this is a place where great crimes had taken place, including genocide, including the massacre of Srebrenica, in which 7,000 Bosnians were killed.
0: Yeah, I I got to Bosnia in September 1995, and Srebrenica had happened two, two and a half months beforehand. People didn't know what the future held. There was a ceasefire, but people were always aware that could unravel at any moment. When I went to Garajda, they were not sure what was going to happen. They were not allowed out of the enclave. What was clear in their mind is that whatever you're hearing in the news about peace negotiations, that could all unravel in a minute. So it was an uncertain and uneasy time. Sarajevo, I think, was fed up with journalists. I was sort of exempted from that fed-upness because I was a cartoonist, or that's how people like to think of me. I couldn't afford to be in a hotel, so I rented a room in someone's flat, and that was a good thing. I mean, I realized all the things that I felt like were inhibiting me actually really served me well. If you're in a hotel, I enjoy hanging out with other journalists, but you're with other journalists. When you're staying with someone, you're kind of seeing how someone really lives, and you're going to cafes, you're a little more integrated into something else.
1: Do you think also working as a visual artist, as a cartoonist, as opposed to a daily journalist, might at times have made you seem like less of a threat to people, less of an object of suspicion? Do you think more people were willing to confide in you? Because after all, what you told them was not going to appear in the newspaper the next day.
0: I don't know if they put it all together quite like that. I mean, I think they were just suspicious of the Western media. And when you talk about visual media, they were very suspicious of photographers, photojournalists, Because the the stories you'd hear about photojournalists parking themselves along Sniper Alley and getting these pictures, right? And, I mean, they had to do a job and maybe that's telling you what's going on. But to a city that had watched it for three and a half years, it got all... Whether
1: intentionally or not, a kind of complicity with the
0: killers. That's how it might have been portrayed. Now, I was very lucky and this was... I had no clue this had happened, but there was a guy who had reviewed my work in a magazine that had started up during the war named Dani. He'd reviewed my work and an article came out about a month before I got there. This guy who reviewed it, Karim Zymovich was his name. He was killed just before I got there. But his review of my work sort of opened these doors to me in a certain way. Like people knew who I was because he had written this article.
1: So you had been favorably reviewed by a martyr.
0: Favorably reviewed by a martyr, And also, you know, I mean, the Bosnians have a comics culture, just as the Palestinians have a, they have their great cartoonist, Najal Ali,
1: who himself was murdered,
0: who was assassinated in London in the 80s. And so sometimes I feel like I don't really know this when I get there. But when I'm there, people go, oh, like our cartoonist or, oh, we love comics. You know, there's sort of an affinity with my work because it's not the standard Western approach, I think.
1: And also, I mean, you came from Malta. Malta is a great unknown. It's a little country and a great unknown. Yeah, well,
0: I mean, literally in Palestine, people would laugh when they heard I came from Malta because the saying they have is go to Malta, like it's go to Timbuktu. And some of them didn't even know Malta was a real place. That was just like go to Malta means go as far away as we can imagine. (laughs) So it was a joke to them on some level. So I've you know, I've always been unthreatening. I've gotta say, I'm not pressing, I don't press hard, I don't need to. That's the other thing. I mean Well and also
1: Joe, I mean, aside from being an incredible draftsman, you're also a great listener. The work that you do is essentially listening to people.
0: A journalist should be a good listener. Also, I'm I'm short, I'm unthreatening. I mean, I'm around other journalists and they can be pretty alpha. And I'm just not that person. I mean, I might not get certain things they can get, but I'm pretty good about sinking into the background and letting people get to know me. And I've always had that luxury. I mean, that's that's the luxury of how I've done my work is that I'm not filing every day. I don't have to go to the press conference. I can sort of sink into a place for, for weeks or months and just let things eventually percolate to the top. Because a, a lot of the work has been about letting people get to know me and getting to know them before I broach certain things.
1: One of the more striking works of reportage you've done in recent years was a report uh, in the Virginia Quarterly from Malta. And that piece was about African refugees and the racist and sometimes violent reaction they had experienced um, in Malta. There's even a character um, in that piece named Norman Lowell, who's very reminiscent of the French Great Replacement theorist, uh, Renaud Camus, who has warned that uh, people from the colonized world, from the darker-skinned nations, uh, are going to come and take over Western societies and transform them beyond recognition. This is essentially what Norman Lowell has been saying in Malta, and some of the Maltese seem to agree with him. You mentioned that St. Paul was shipwrecked in Malta, and that he struggled through a raging surf onto the land uh, where he was shown immense kindness by the Maltese. You Remind a relative of yours of the story and compare it to the cold and often racist reception that had been accorded to African refugees. Your relative says to you, but St. Paul was here for a while and then he left. That must've been something for you reporting from Malta.
0: Yeah, thank you. It was um, disappointing on, on a certain personal level. I, under- I mean, I, I, I understand the tension in a small place like that, that suddenly sees thousands of very unfamiliar faces of a different race, mostly men, not really having anywhere to go, being held in these centers. Maltese are very satisfied with their lives. They have a, they have a good standard of living. Any people do not like to see good standard of living and a comfortable life being unsettled in any way
1: and imperiled by people who do not look like them or speak the same language
0: D- different language different skin color all that so like all Europeans like all Americans they're wrestling with it it's just a personal disappointment to me being Maltese and being raised with this idea of how hospitable the Maltese are that's kind of what we like to think of ourselves as being very hospitable in that kind of arabic sense it's it's unfortunate to see that but it's just the reality is how the world is now
1: you've embedded with american soldiers in iraq you've reported from afghanistan you've reported among the dalits the untouchables in india you've reported from palestine from bosnia i mean you've done the lion's share of your work in so-called conflict zones and hot places but in recent years You've done work in the United States and in North America. And it seems to me that in recent years, particularly during the period of the Trump administration, but arguably since 9-11 and the Iraq war, there's been a great humbling in this country and an understanding that all is not well here, and in fact never was. In 2012, you published with the journalist Chris Hedges a book called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, a portrait of an American unraveling and you're looking at urban decline, violence and drug use in Camden, despair among Native Americans in South Dakota, unemployed minors in West Virginia. It's a very pressing portrait of America at the height of the Obama era. How did this book come about?
0: That book came about because I think Chris Chris Hedges was here on a book tour. We met in Bosnia, we're old friends, and we'd uh, reported in Gaza together. Uh, We were sitting at a bar, having a drink, and we were just talking about the state of affairs in America. And just over a drink, we said, let's let's do a book together. It was really a worthwhile book to do, because as you said, I've spent a lot of my time abroad, looking at problems abroad. This was the first time, that book was the first time I've really examined what was going on in America. I mean, I, I sort of knew America was falling apart just from my reading or the newspaper, whatever it is. But it was sobering to go and spend times with people who really had been left behind, had been used up, were being exploited, had been exploited, and now were kind of the refuse. What's interesting to me, living in a place like Portland, Oregon, you're, I'm now seeing what I saw in the interiors or in those, let's call them America's peripheries, now visiting the city that I live in
1: right those supposedly peripheral tensions and conflicts have spread to the center
0: yeah or what I can you know the coasts let's say the, the, lib- the liberal coasts. the coasts of, right Portland the poster boy for the New York Times of good living they should come to Portland now and, and see the homeless yeah. encampments in the city see the places boarded up it's not just the pandemic I mean obviously that's really really kicked things over
1: decades of neoliberal policy too
0: This is decades of neoliberal policy, decades of leaving people behind. And yeah, America does not put people first.
1: One of the characters in Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt is a young Native American man who becomes a a meth user and dealer. His story is truly uh, ghastly. And he's both a victim and a perpetrator. And in your recent book, uh, published in 2020, Paying the Land, Uh, you've chronicled the recent history of the indigenous tribes in northwestern Canada. One of the groups is called the Dene, and in, in, in the first part of Paying the Land, we read about the pervasiveness of drug and alcohol addiction and of sexual abuse in the Dene community. But then we flip the page to another part of the book, and we learn about the horror of the atrocities visited upon this community, and we begin to understand better how this community has turned in on itself after all this trauma. And the story that I'm referring to, of course, is the so-called residential schools where thousands of indigenous children were sent, basically kidnapped from their families to be educated by Catholic nuns. Their heads shaved, they became numbers rather than names, and the aim was to educate the Indian out of them. I think this was later described by the Canadian government as an act of cultural genocide. How did you end up reporting on the history of the Dene?
0: I was trying to get away from conflict. I was trying to get away from drawing the AK-47 ever again. And I was looking for another topic. And of course, the climate climate interests me. What's happening with the climate? But I thought I'd, I'd just approach it a bit.
1: And there's the whole struggle over the pipeline there. Of That's course. right. And the That's it. Uh, Dene have different points of view on it. There are some who support it and there are others who oppose right. it.
0: Right. And I thought I'd do a, a story about indigenous people and where resources are extracted indigenous people are always the first who are impacted by resource extraction
1: but of course resource extraction can be a kind of slow violence that is as lethal in its own way as an ak-47
0: that's what i wanted to go see and of course i always go into all my stories i, I hate to admit this but with certain
1: de there's yes or some notion of what's driving the conflict because you end up with a very complex portrait. I mean, there's nothing... Right,
0: and I wasn't looking for a complex portrait. I was looking for what do Indigenous people think of resource extraction. And in my own head, I'm thinking Indigenous people are against resource extraction. I mean, as much as I read about the subject, the problem is a lot of what you read is by activists. And they tend to give you a certain slant. When I got there, I realized it was much more complicated than that, that there were conflicts within the communities about resource extraction, how far to go, where it was going to lead and between communities that had completely different ideas of how far to go with it or even to whether to do it. So already the the, the narrative was being complicated, but then I was sort of told stay away from the whole residential school thing because that's trauma. And you know what, I was I'll be honest, I thought this was going to be a short magazine piece and it was a short magazine piece, but I, I couldn't stay away from residential schools because it was the elephant in the room. You began to understand how residential schools ties in with the loss of land or the loss of culture and how basically the Canadian government wanted to control the land and to control the land, you have to control the people on it. And if you can if you can separate them from the land. Now, there are different ways of doing that. In Palestine, it's like getting rid of them. In Canada, the way to separate them from the land is to destroy their culture.
1: And I think it's also tied in with the Canadian government's idea of quote-unquote progress, right? Progress in turning them into just ordinary Canadians.
0: That's absolutely true. Of course, it's that's not, that's not only a Canadian thing. I think various societies. Well, it's
1: very much a settler colonial.
0: It's a a settler colonial thing. It's a civilizing mission. Yes, it's about progress. And that is not how the Dene thought of themselves or thought what their future should be. But of course, the Canadian government had cut people from the land, cut them from their culture. Their culture was all based on the land. And that has severely damaged those communities. So you can look at these problems. If you go to Canada now, you can look at problems with indigenous communities. You can see the alcoholism, the drug use, domestic abuse. If that's where your story ends, you're not doing the story any sort of service at all. That's why history is important. And that's why the residential school system, it had to be a big part of the story.
1: And what's historically significant is very often what's invisible to the naked eye. You don't see the residential school. You see the symptoms of it many years later.
0: That's it. You see symptoms. You see someone on the street drunk. You don't see colonialism. And I think that's what was interesting to me was I realized this was a much bigger story. This is not just about people and resource extraction. That is a part of it. It's a deeper story about how colonialism works and how colonialism unfolds over the generations. And I, I, it went from being basically a magazine piece to being a book. And I realized I had to get back. I had to do. I had to go back a second time and really try to probe much more deeply into this.
1: Do you feel that your work as an artist has evolved in recent years? It's, it's my sense from looking at it that it's become much denser. That there's more going on on the page than in your earlier work. That it's become more painterly.
0: I think over time, I've tried to learn how to draw more representationally. If you look at my early drawings, like from Palestine, there's an aspect of caricature. To be fair to myself, I never studied how to draw. I was influenced by the undergrounds. I've always had sort of a grotesque lens with which to view humanity. Probably because of some of the fine artists I like, like Bruegel, There's a bit of a grotesque element there that's appealing to me somehow. But over time, I've tried to work that out of my hand because if if my work is going to be journalistic, I just felt like I had to draw a bit more realistically. I didn't want to insult people. I wanted to represent them more accurately. And you know what? The truth is I'm never going to get that cartoony look out of my hand. It is maybe more painterly is your way of putting it, but I'm never going to draw really accurately, as much as I even try to. And, and to be honest, that sort of painterly way is not really natural to me. Whenever I'm drawing in a cartoony way, it flows very easily. Drawing more representationally is quite difficult, and it's always a strain.
1: In many of your books, there's a fixer. There's someone who's showing you around a place that you don't know, and where you might even feel Otherwise unwelcome. What do you feel is your responsibility to those subjects? Do they ever comment on how they're depicted in your work?
0: My responsibility to them is basically if they read my work and they see themselves in my work, they will recognize themselves, and I don't mean just the physical representation. They'll represent. They they will recognize something about themselves that is true to them. It might not always be flattering but they'll know it's not made up. That's my responsibility to them as individuals. And my responsibility is to try to tell their story as best I can. And you know, you you said something earlier, and even I've used this sort of formulation, which I don't really like anymore. It's that uh, give voice to the voiceless. I've always, I'm starting to feel-
1: It's become a very canned notion, of course, and can sometimes be a very romantic idea of what it's like to be oppressed.
0: Yeah, and it, but it also has this sort of um, savior. There's a, Charity, Yeah,
1: sounds like charity, the, the white savior. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's got this sort of patronizing aspect about it, and I don't like it now. I mean, I prefer to lend an ear to people who do well. I, I don't know the formulation I'd use, but it's lending an ear to people who do have a voice. They talk amongst themselves. We just don't listen. It's listening that's the most important thing. So... My responsibility is to, is to listen and to try to capture something of their lives and experiences. You know, what an outsider can capture, what they've allowed me to capture. And I'm often very lucky in this, is, is that often people will tell me things in such a way that will basically help me frame what I'm doing. Uh, for example, in the book Paying the Land, it starts with Paul Andrew telling me about life on the land when he was young. Now, the reason we had that interview was so he could tell me about residential schools, but he started talking to me about what life was like on the land. He wasn't trying to do this actually, but he was actually suggesting to me a structure for the book. That's what I mean by listening. That's how he wants to frame it. He wants to frame it as this residential school thing happened, but to understand who we were before residential schools got to us, this is how we live. This is who we were and who we still aspire to be. It's just sort of listening in in many different ways.
1: I wonder if we could talk a bit about the project that you've been working on for a number of years, about the Rolling Stones, because it does seem like a shift in your work, away from these intense political concerns and towards something that is more personal and connected to your obsessions and maybe even to your experiences in Berlin as a young man following that rock band.
0: Well, I mean the Stones book originally started out as a when I was conceiving it as a book about the Rolling Stones in a funny way. Over time, it's just gone in different directions. It's the one book I'm doing where I'm really allowing it to dictate itself. And so over time, I realize it's become a place where everything I think about and have observed that isn't necessarily journalism, can fit somehow, or try to fit. For example, my journalistic work is really about, you know, the standard journalistic things. Who, what, where, when, why, how. But really, at some point, at some point I just got, I'm I'm aghast at humanity. (laughs) It, It often happens on the drawing page when I'm drawing a massacre. It can actually be more difficult to draw something like that than to be in the Gaza Strip listening to these stories. Because when you're listening to those stories, you're just acting very professionally, trying to sort out a story. When you're drawing, you really have to put yourself in that moment. I found difficulty drawing certain things, difficulty drawing the killers, difficulty drawing their eyes. And we talked about eyes earlier. And I realize it's because I don't really understand what they're thinking or what's going through their minds and what's the psychology What isn't really the the geopolitical concern going on? What's going on in that individual's mind when he's pulling the trigger? Internally and morally, and that's not often a journalistic question. And so some of this stuff which has been troubling me a lot over time, over the course of my career, is ending up in this book. Not so much answering a lot of those questions, because I'm not sure if I'll ever have the answers to them, but to bringing those questions up and to teasing over them.
1: Well, you've occasionally sent me images that you've been working on from this book, and what's impressed me about those images is how wild and free and even surreal they seem. It looks as though you're channeling some of your craziest, darkest impulses and just fearlessly putting them on the page, which I imagine you couldn't have done as easily at an earlier point in your career.
0: Well, the funny thing is, I mean, we talked about the whole graphic novel debate. And once comics became graphic novels, that was very good for me. I'm one of those people who really benefited from a certain clout that came to the graphic novel. My books are in universities. You know, they're being taught in schools. They're well regarded. They're reviewed in the New York Times.
1: You're legit now.
0: I'm legit. And I... I don't, I can't say I hate it, but there's something about me that really strains against that and just remembers that old time when I loved the underground comics, I loved the fact that no one was paying attention and I could do what I want. And that's kind of what this book is. It's absolutely free. It's liberating. It's fun. I feel like I'm seven years old again, drawing when I'm, you know, when I first started out, it's Every day is a joy. And you have to understand, I mean, I love doing what I do. Even my, I love doing my journalistic work. But it can be difficult to spend three or four or five years drawing one sort of look, one sort of architecture, one sort of vehicle. That can be hard to do day in, day out. You have to be quite disciplined to do that. You can't sort of go out of certain bounds, especially if it's journalistic work. I really need to go out of bounds again and to let my freak flag fly. I mean, let's just say that. And this is it.
1: Well, Joe, I can't wait to see it. And it has been such a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Adam. A real pleasure talking to you.
1: You've been listening to Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to the New York Institute for the Humanities, Robert Boynton, Eric Banks, and Corey Cox. The music on this episode is composed and performed by Richard Sears. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe.